Good morning. So, what does money have to do with theology? I mean, I think it's an important question for us to ask here in the middle of this series on biblical wisdom. What does money have to do with theology? But I have to be honest, as I've gone through my life, this has not always been the first question on my mind. One of my first encounters with money, I remember, was when I was probably four years old. I went to uh, the grocery store with my mom and older brother. We had just finished what was, I'm sure, a very non-stressful experience for my mom. And we're standing there at the checkout line. Well, as my mom was busy, uh, you know, checking out or something like that, I was perusing the magazines that were displayed right there. And one caught my eye. I picked it up. It's a very interesting magazine. It had so much good stuff in it. And so, knowing that anything that cost money had a price tag, I flipped it over to see how much it cost. To my surprise, it only had a barcode. There was no price listed. In my four-year-old mind, this could only mean one thing. This was free. I was elated. Oh, this was awesome. How much luck I had to find a magazine like that right there as we were getting ready to leave the grocery store. I flipped through it. I was so happy. It finally, it was time to go. I tucked it under my arm and I marched proudly out of that store. In the middle of the parking lot, I couldn't take it anymore. I just had to take another look. So I pulled out my magazine. And I'm looking at it again as we're walking to the car. And all of a sudden, my mom stops pushing the car right in the middle of the parking lot. It was kind of dangerous. <laughs> she looks at me and she says, John, what is that in your hand? Mom, it's a magazine. <laughs> Where did you get it? from the grocery store. It was in the checkout line. I could see the surprise on her face, so I quickly followed this up with, don't worry, Mom. I checked to see if there was a price tag and there wasn't a price listed, so it's free. I beamed. My mother did not. In the minutes that followed, I did not inwardly ponder the question, what does money have to do with theology? The only ology on my mind was eschatology. <laughs> as we turned around and made our way back into the store, as we waited for the store manager, and as I looked the store manager in the face and apologized for being a thief. So what does money have to do with theology, really? I think for some of us, we'd like the answer to that question to be, eh, not much, right? I mean, if, if I'm really honest, in my weaker moments, that's how I'd prefer to see it. I brought something with me this morning. Um, I actually brought some money. This is uh, $2,000 of my own cash right here. I'm just going to set it out for us. Now, um, just, just so you know, I don't normally make a habit of bringing out my money to show people. Um, my... Uh, yeah, my wife and I have five children. Uh, I'm the only one in our family who brings in a consistent financial income. Uh, we are not what people around here or the federal government would consider uh, rich, although I do understand that on a global scale, I am tremendously wealthy. But this money, I think in a way, uh, just in a small way actually, sort of represents the ways that my wife and I have been so incredibly blessed, and we really have been. Here's the reason I brought it out uh, for us to talk about this morning. I think it's a little bit easy when we talk about things like money and theology, 
for it to be all abstract, right? And for us to forget that, like, no, this is actually money that we're talking about, like, like actual cash, right? Like, I'm looking at this, $2,000 of my hard-earned money, and I'm like, you know, I've got some things I could think to do with some of this, right? I could think of some places that maybe we could go as a family, some things that we could do, maybe some meals that we could eat. How, how much does theology have to do with money? In my weaker moments, I'd prefer very little, right? I mean, it's not that I don't want God involved in this area of my life. It's just that maybe it'd be better if he wasn't like super involved, right? Like, no, if he wants to give me money, I'm super cool with that, right? <laughs> but, but what if he wants to like have some of it? Like I worked hard for it, so how much is he gonna want, right? Like, like is he gonna want this much? Is he gonna want like, like this much? What if he wants like, like this much? And so over the past few months, I've worked through the books of Proverbs and James, the two books that we're working through in this series, trying to answer the question, what does money have to do with theology? By my count, there are over 175 times that money or possessions are talked about in these two books alone. That's a lot of material. Now understand, I'm, I'm saying money, but really what I'm talking about is both money and possessions. That seems to be the way the Bible talks about it. It's more than just like, where do I swipe my card, right? The Bible seems to speak to the, the stuff that I swipe my card for, or the things that I think about, the things that I think I want, or the things that I need or think I need. It, it's, it's concerned with the money I get to pay my card off, or to save, or to invest, or to not invest, or to spend. All of it is related to this issue of money. And the more I've thought and meditated on these texts, the more I've become convinced of this, everything I do with money, from how I think about it, to how I acquire it, to how I keep it, to how I spend it, all of it is related to how I view God. And God has sort of hardwired the system so that money has this special sort of power to function as a sort of window into my heart and soul. In fact, my use of money exposes my theology. Let me tell you what I mean. First of all, a distorted use of money emerges from a distorted theology. One of my favorite passages in all of the book of Proverbs comes in Proverbs chapter one. Here in Proverbs chapter one, the father is just beginning his first of 10 lectures to his son that'll take up Proverbs chapters one through nine. Now, when the father is lecturing the son, he's not giving him these kind of lofty, high philosophical arguments on how to live. Rather, he fills these lectures with really graphic pictures of the things that the son is going to face in real life. In the very first lecture, the father tells the son about one temptation he's going to face. It's the temptation, the lure of peer pressure. Listen to what he says in Proverbs chapter one, verse 10. My son, if sinners try to persuade you, do not let them. This is a group of the son's peers. They're inviting him to join. Notice what they say, verse 11. If they say, come with us, let us lie in ambush. Their voices are in competition with the voices of the mother and the father earlier in Proverbs chapter one. They lie in wait like animals waiting for their prey. 
They go on, let us lie in ambush for blood. Let us lie and wait for the innocent for no reason at all. Let us swallow them alive, just like Sheol, and whole like ones going down to the pit. Now, we may feel pretty safe at this point that we have never encountered anyone like this before. I don't know what your hood was like growing up, <clears throat> but my guess is you've never met someone who talks like that. I mean, seriously, right? Like, lie in ambush for blood. Lie in wait for the innocent for no reason at all. Swallow them alive like Sheol. Like, seriously, who talks like that? <laughs> and I think the answer is nobody, right? Nobody actually talks like that, and that's part of the Father's purpose. The Father is not interested in giving an exact account of what the peers are going to say. Rather, he's trying to communicate the message that this is what's behind their words. No matter what their words might be, this is actually what it is that they're after. Notice what he says as he goes on, verse 13. The group says, we will find all kinds of valuable things. We will fill our houses with stolen goods. Throw your hat in with us. We'll share the jackpot together. Why in the world would you lie and wait for innocent blood? Well, the promise of money. More than you could get on your own. So the father issues his warning in verses 15 and 16. My son, do not go along with them in the way. Hold back your foot from their path. For their feet run to whatever is evil, and they are eager to pour out blood. So what does this have to do with our question of money and theology? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, the Father talks about this group of people as sinners. It's the same word used for the people at Sodom. The same word used for the individuals, the shady characters in Psalm chapter 1. It's essentially people who have no interest in Yahweh or his agenda. They live lives that are completely and totally opposed to God's worldview and what God wants in this world. These are not individuals whose delight is in the law of the Lord on which they meditate day and night. No, these individuals are just after a fast buck, a stolen profit, a quick dollar. What they probably don't realize is that their theology actually drives everything they do. And their distortions in their theology have a really clear impact on their behavior. Now, I could talk for a long time about all of the distortions of theology that work themselves out in our use of money, but I'm just going to choose a few of the ones that I think Proverbs and James really focus on. Here's one distortion. If God is absent, then God doesn't care about my money. This seems to be the position of the gang in Proverbs chapter 1. God is not interested in how I use my money, so God is not interested in how I keep it, and therefore God is not interested in how I give it. He's not around to care, so I'm just going to get more and more and more. This is the temptation of consumerism. And just like it corrupted Pharaoh in Egypt, just like it corrupted the gang in Proverbs chapter one, so it will corrupt us. If we buy into consumerism, we will never have enough. Sure, my purchase may provide some sort of temporary satisfaction, but pretty soon the buzz will wear off and I'll need another fix. Here's another distortion. If God is stingy, then I better get as much as I can for myself. Why give to other people? 
when I've got needs, or at least perceived needs? Why give of my money when I could use it myself? And if God is stingy, if he's tight-fisted, then I can't rely on him to give me anything, so I better keep it and hoard whatever it is that I have. Of course, it doesn't take very long when you have this perspective then to start removing any morals or principles that would stand in the way of you acquiring more. Here's another distortion. If God is fickle, then I should just give up trying to do anything with my money. Now, admittedly, this is not so much the view of the gang in Proverbs chapter one, but it is the perspective of several other individuals all throughout the book of Proverbs who mistakenly assume that apathy is more admirable than greed. Perhaps at some point in their lives, they've become disillusioned or overwhelmed or frustrated with what seems to be a very fickle and undependable God. Or maybe we actually could find ourselves in this position. If we find that our use of money has left us frustrated and overwhelmed, we just don't understand what to do with our money in the first place. Or maybe it's just that adulting is a lot harder than we thought it would be, right? And so maybe we throw up our hands and say, just forget it all. I'm not gonna think about money at all. The problem is this behavior exposes an underlying theology of a fickle God. Or how about this? If there is no God, then my money reigns supreme. I think this is one of the most destructive of all of the distortions. It's functional atheism. And it essentially says that everything must bow down at the altar of my money. Of course, none of this is wisdom because none of these views are biblical. These, these uses of money expose a theology that is wholly lacking and insufficient and real honestly riddled with lies from the depths of hell. But I think the father knows that in Proverbs chapter one. In fact, I think that's actually part of his purpose. We left off in verse 16 of Proverbs chapter one. Here's what verse 17 says. For it's pointless to spread out a net right in front of any bird. I love this verse. I, I think it's a sort of uh, a picture of the way that Proverbs work. You see, it's pointless to like set up a trap right in front of a bird and think that the bird is gonna fall for it. Right? If the bird can actually see you setting the trap, it's not going to get caught. The only way a trap works is if you set up the trap and then somehow make it so that the bird doesn't know it's there. The father knows how seductive sin can be. And so what he's trying to do is show the son, if you are not careful, you will listen to the smooth and seductive words, failing to realize that there is actually a trap. You will end up just like that poor Bird, sorry for the video. <laughs> if we don't heed the father's warning, if we don't listen to what he has to say about biblical wisdom concerning money, we risk exposing our theology for just what it is, a weak theology built around an absent, stingy, fickle, or non-existent God. But biblical wisdom calls us to shift our perspective. It invites us on a journey to change the way we think about God and therefore change the way we use our money. A wise use of money emerges 
from good theology. Now, again, I could spend a long time talking about all of the ways that this is true, but I'm just gonna hit those main areas that we just uh, talked about, the, the contrary side of it. So here's the first one. If God is present, then how I use money reflects his involvement. You see, God is actually involved. God is actually here. Notice what Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. It certainly seems to suggest that God is involved somehow with my money. Or this from Proverbs 15 verse six, in the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Proverbs 28 verse 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Strange things are happening if God is not involved. Proverbs 22, verse four, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You see, God is not absent. God is very present and he knows exactly what happens with my use of money. So if God is present, then how I use money should reflect that reality. Here's another one. If God is generous, then I can be generous. Now this one's, maybe a little bit more difficult for some of us. We live in a culture that preaches scarcity, right? You're, you'll never have enough. There's never enough. You'll always need to get more and more and more. And so we begin to hold on to whatever we have and grasp for whatever we can in addition to that. And this kills our giving, right? We become so convinced that we'll never have enough that the point at which we give never comes. In fact, some of you have convinced yourself that you don't need to give because you struggle to make ends meet. Why should you have to give in the first place? But you see, there's a terrible lie embedded in this thinking. Here's the truth. God is not stingy. God gives lavishly and freely and abundantly, God is a generous God. And if God is a generous God, then I can be generous no matter how much money I have or do not have. You see, it's actually not really about money at all. A few weeks ago in a faculty staff lunch, uh, one of the staff members here was sharing in a Devo about how uh, several months ago he had had some minor surgery and had to take several months off of work. Uh, he wasn't going to be paid for all of that time, so he and his family were kind of struggling to know, how are we going to make ends meet? And he said, but we trusted in God. And then he said, you know what we found was that God provided for all of our needs that whole time that I was off work. In fact, provided even more than we needed so that we were able to bless some other people. I was sitting there and thinking about that. I thought, you know, could you not have thought of something else to do with that extra money, right? Like, like if you had some surplus, didn't you wanna like set it aside just in case you didn't have money next month? Or, or maybe you could have like set it aside so that you could take a nice trip or go out to a nice dinner. No, it's not that this guy didn't know that there were some other things he could spend money on. It's that he knew what he had was enough and he could be generous because God's generosity had changed who he was. That's a generosity that reflects a generous God. Listen to what some of the Proverbs and James have to say 
about generosity. Proverbs 14, verse 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. James 2, 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Or Proverbs 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Or how about this one? For God so loved the world that he gave. If our use of money exposes our theology, I wonder, does how you use your money point to a generous God like that? I grew up in a, a church, there was an older family, uh, older, older couple in the church named Norval and Dondina Campbell. They had served their lives living overseas uh, in the Philippines, serving the Lord on what I perceive was probably a very limited and modest income. But they had shared that uh, early in, earlier in their marriage, they had made a decision that as a family, they would increase their giving every year by 1% until they reached a point where they could no longer make ends meet. When they were sharing this, they were in their 80s and they had recently stopped giving, increasing their giving. Uh, but the point at which they stopped, they were giving something like 43% of their income every year away. That is a life <laughs> that points to a generous God. Maybe some of you need to do that. Maybe this year you just give 10% and next year you increase it to 11. Listen, don't buy into the lie for a second that you'll suddenly give once you have a few more zeros in your bank account. If you don't give money now when you don't have much, you're not suddenly going to start once you start making more money. Here's another truth that counteracts the lie. If God is wise, then I can use wisdom to avoid poor financial decisions. You see, God is not fickle, but he is full of wisdom. And if we pray and ask, he will give that wisdom to us. And we use this godly wisdom then to avoid get-rich-quick schemes, to avoid ridiculous spending of our money, to avoid the indiscriminate use of our wealth. Listen to what the Proverbs say. Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Proverbs 17, verse 18, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Proverbs 29, verse three, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Proverbs 20, verse 13, love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Use wisdom in your financial decisions because you serve a wise God. And then there's this. If God is God, then money is not. You see, if God sits on his throne, then there's no room for my money to sit there as well. And so Proverbs 27, verse 24, riches do not last forever. Or Proverbs 11:28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And if God is on his throne and my money is not, then that means that my money's maybe not as important as I thought it was. In fact, there's a whole heap of things that are more important than a pile of cash. Here's just a few, Proverbs 6:26, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Proverbs 8, verse 11, wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Proverbs 15, verse 16, better 
better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, verse 19, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 28, verse 6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Proverbs 31, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. You see, in the end, my use of money exposes my theology. God is interested in hearts that choose to trust him. And I think that's best reflected, uh, if we can picture it, in open hands. You see, God wants to provide for everybody that shares this planet with us. And he wants to use us as his financial conduits to do just that, right? And so open hands, not tight-fisted ones, but open hands reflect a present and generous and wise and sovereign God. Here's my challenge for you. If you really believe in a present and generous and wise and sovereign God, will you let your use of money reflect that reality? Of course, it's easy to talk in generalities without actually realizing how this hits us. And so, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this money and I'm gonna give it to you. So some guys are coming up right now and I'm gonna put this money in these offering bags. Here's what we're gonna do for the first time in your life and maybe the only time, so take advantage of it. They're gonna pass these offering bags down your row. You get to stick your hand in the offering bag and pull something out, okay? So there's some ones here, some fives here. Here's a hundred. All right, so here's, here's some ground rules for how this works, okay? So it's gonna come down your aisle. You're just gonna take it as it's passed and you're just gonna pull a bill out, all right? So no taking twice, all right? Your neighbors are watching you, all right? You can't, you can't double dip. Uh, secondly, you can't go back if you don't like what you chose, all right? <laughs> like I am the father of five children. I know the way these things work, all right? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. All right, so. <laughs> So as it comes down, uh, and guys, you can go ahead and start passing it now. So as it comes down, uh, just go ahead and take it. Now, if you get, uh, this wasn't very scientific, so if, if it gets to you and the bag is empty, all right, just be like, hey, the bag's empty, I want some money, and we'll make sure that we get you some money from other places, okay? Uh, so please make sure that you speak up. Okay, so four things I wanna ask you to do as this money comes around. Four things I want you to do with it. Here's the first thing. I want you to take this bill that you drew out of that bag, and I want you for the rest of today to look at that bill and tell yourself, my use of money 
exposes my theology. Maybe you need to stick it in your hand and like literally hold it in your hand for the rest of the day. Maybe you need to put it in your pocket uh, with your keys so that you can, you can feel it every time you go to drive. Maybe you, need to, uh, maybe you need to put it in your purse or in your wallet. Maybe you need to actually like stick it on your computer as you're working on assignments later this afternoon. I don't know how you want to do it, but just figure out a way to carry this around with you so that you see it. And whenever you see it today, Repeat this phrase, my use of money exposes my theology. Since we're gonna be doing it a lot today, let's go ahead and practice now. Let's all say it together. Ready, here we go. My use of money exposes my theology. Let's say it one more time with gusto. My use of money exposes my theology. Very good. Number two, starting tomorrow morning, not today, but starting tomorrow morning, here's what I want you to do. I challenge you to take that bill and match it with the same amount of your own money. So did you draw a one? Match it with a $1 bill of your own. Draw a five, five of your own for 10. 100, you know what to do. (laughs) Number three, give it all away, all of it. Now, I'm not telling you where you need to give it to, but I've been praying for you And I trust that in the days to come, if not already, you'll be faced with a situation or someone who needs something and you could provide for their needs. My only request is that you keep biblical wisdom and the texts that we've covered in this sermon in mind as you try to figure out where to give your money away. Now, if you're struggling with some ideas, you could go and talk to James and Katie, our VIPs, see if they have any ideas for you. Uh, My friend Tim is here. He works for Compassion International. You could come talk to him, or you could come talk to me, and I could give you some ideas of some places that you could give. But I I think you guys are going to have some ideas of ways that you can give this. Now, one important note here, uh, feel free to grow the money before you choose to give it away. Okay, I'm not saying you have to, but if you would like, some of you uh, of the entrepreneurial sort needs to figure out a way to increase this money. I've heard of some of the things that happen in the dorms. I have great faith in your creativity, okay? Uh, (laughs) Some of you need to grow this by two, three, four, five, ten times, and then give it away. But regardless, just give it away. Here's number four. Text this number that's on the screen anonymously and tell us, number one, how much did you give? Number two, where did you give it? And number three, a brief story of your experience, maybe how it made you feel or what you struggled with or what you thought was cool or not cool about it. I don't know, just text a brief story there. Again, all of this is anonymous, so no shaming for not texting, but we really would love to hear about how you spend the money. Got it? Have fun. So what does money have to do with theology? Several years ago, uh, after a couple of hurricanes down south, my oldest two children, Emmett and Maddie, started talking about what they could do to help out the hurricane victims. They decided that they would like to have a bake sale to bake some cookies and then they could give the proceeds to the hurricane victims. We thought this sounded like a great idea. And so uh, my wife and I said, tell you what, guys, we will take care of buying all of the ingredients for the cookies. You just take care of baking them uh, and, uh, and then selling them, and then we can give you know, all of the profit to, to the hurricane victims. So that sounded like a good plan for them. Well, a few days before 
a few days before the sale, we were all sitting around uh, talking as a family. And I, I guess because we were talking about cookies, uh, they started to get hungry, right? And my daughter, Maddie, she looks at me and she goes, so dad, when we make all these cookies, are we gonna get some cookies? And I was like, you bet, Maddie, you can totally buy a cookie. <laughs> and she was shocked. She turned away and I could see her. She was, you know, stewing for a few minutes. She turns back around. She's got tears streaming down her face. She says, but dad, I only have $7 in my piggy bank. And if I give a dollar to buy a cookie, that doesn't leave me much money to do anything else with. My wife and I said, Maddie, we totally get it. Giving is hard, isn't it? But we talked to her about God's generosity, how it helps us to be generous. We talked about how, how sometimes when we struggle to feel generous, we can ask God and God's spirit actually comes alongside and, and helps us to have generous hearts. And so we said, Maddie, do you think maybe you could ask God that and see if, if he would want to do something in you? And so she kind of shook her head, yes. Fast forward to the day of the sale. What we thought would be just a uh, couple hour bake of a couple dozen cookies turned into this massive event. It was like multiple days. I think we baked over 300 cookies. <laughs> it sold almost every one of them. It was awesome. Uh, but towards the end of sale day, we had just a few cookies left. And so I said, all right, guys, it's time for your cookies. So all of our kids ran and they got their dollar and they came back and one by one, they bought a cookie, even Maddie. And she sat down at the table and she ate. Then all the kids went off to play. But Maddie went back to her room and she comes back with $6. And she said, here, dad, this is for the fundraiser. I said, wow, Maddie, you have really had a change of heart. You must really have liked those cookies. <laughs> you wanna buy six more. And she shook her head and she said, no, dad, actually, I don't, I don't want any more cookies. I just wanna give my money. And off she went to play. Now, I've not always clearly seen in life what money has to do with theology. But in that moment, my daughter's theology spoke loud and clear. And it led me to worship. May our use of money lead others to do the same.